0: Everyone had given all this money to like build their friend graph on MySpace and it just disappeared. And I would be speaking at these music conferences and the drum that we would beat, most of the people who were on these panels, was like direct connection with your listeners. Direct connection with your listeners. Do not go through platforms as your only way of reaching them. Direct connection.
1: Podcast Junkies, episode 291. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran feels like it's been a week or two since I've been here. I think lots going on. I actually surprised my mom. I went to go see her for her birthday. This was in April around tax time. And my partner Natalie convinced me to go ahead and do that. So I found myself on a plane at 8 p.m. in the evening, arriving at just past midnight. My brother picked me up at LaGuardia. And Saturday morning, I was able to surprise her and reconnect with some of my siblings. My brother had flown up from New Orleans. So it's really good time. Nice to see the, the family and, uh, my nieces and nephews. So the only downside was that I had to come back Monday morning, 8 a.m. and, uh, caught a bit of a travel bug. So I was really just out, uh, just low energy aches for most of the week. So it's nice to get back in the saddle. Nice to get things, uh, fired up again. So. I'm excited. Hope you had a restful week as well. And I'm wondering if any of you are up to any travels. If you are, would love to know where and and when and why. (laughs) If you're new to this show, this is the one where we find interesting voices in podcasting and doing things podcast related and get to hear a bit about their origin story and just see what else is on their mind. Last episode, I had a really long-awaited conversation with Dave Jones, host of Podcasting 2.0 and the co-founder of uh, Podcast Index. He, along with Adam Curry of MTV fame, yes, for you 80s kids like me, (laughs) you'll know who Adam is. Uh, And we talked about all the wonderful things they're doing at Podcasting 2.0 and Podcast Index. It's an indexing service for uh, podcasters that ensures that they don't rely just on Apple as being the one source of truth for everything. So this is really, really interesting to see. It's almost like an open source initiative. It is an open source initiative um, that's built by the community. So there's so much to learn in that conversation in terms of Dave's extensive background uh, building software, but also just what inspired them to get this started. Uh, We talk about the role cryptocurrency plays and, and why they wanted to design it from day one to be decentralized. So please check that out. Episode 290 with Dave Jones. This episode, I speak to Brendan Mulligan. He's an entrepreneur who cut his teeth in the music industry before going on to become a co-founder of startups such as OneSheet, Cluster Labs, LaunchKit, Elevate, and PodPage, which we'll talk about today, to name a few. He shares about uh, his experiences with these startups and the successful exits he's had, and his passion for problem-solving and building products that customers love. And yes, he's got experience doing this. We talk about his time at Google, what he learned from all these uh, ups and downs and the current directory and state of the podcast industry, which is always fun to do. Don't forget if you enjoyed this episode or you are enjoying this episode by the time it's done or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies, and I'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. If you are eager to participate in this new crypto value for value economy, I highly encourage you, if you haven't done so already, check out one of the new podcast apps that support direct podcaster support at newpodcastapps.com. I'll be sure to spend some time digging in myself over the next few weeks. And if you are learning how to send boostergrams, go ahead and send one my way and I'll be sure to read those out as well. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Brendan, Here's a few words from folks that are supporting this show. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite and the link will be in the show notes as well. Brendan Mulligan, founder of PodPage. Thank you so much for joining me on Podcast Junkies.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Do you remember the first podcast you ever listened to?
0: That's a good question. I have no idea what it was. (laughs) I don't even know. It was probably, you know, I come from the music industry originally. And so I'm sure there was like, I was listening to a podcast without knowing it was a podcast or, you know, uh, in the early iPod days, probably not really understanding what the whole format was. But
1: so I can't resist the question about the music because I came in, probably came into podcasting because of music. Because I grew up DJing, like vinyl and turntables, and I created a mobile app. It's almost like for just, just like a Pandora, but just for electronic music DJs. It's called Know Your DJ. And then I was like, I want to start a podcast. I want to learn how to interview DJs, and <laughs> I pivoted from that because I realized how hard they were going to be to track down. <laughs> and that's how I started Podcast Junkies in 2014. So, what's your connection to music?
0: Oh, I, you know, I went to college in Nashville, even growing up in high school, I was always super interested in in music and it was like interested at the level of not just hearing the music, but getting to know the bands and all that stuff. So when I was in Nashville, i put on a huge music festival for the college that ended up being like one of the bigger music festivals in the city at the time. And then, then I worked for, I mean, I did everything. I worked for a big booking agency called creative artists agency. I worked at a label and management company. I went out on the road with with bands, both in like literally driving around in sedans, and also doing like arena tours and playing Madison Square Garden. Like, oh, cool. did the whole the whole game. I just did so many things, and I never really found anything in the traditional music industry wh- that i that I felt like was a good fit for me long term. But what I started he- hearing was like a bunch of problems, and seeing a bunch of problems, and experiencing the problems of like as the digital music world was growing, how hard it was for musicians to interact with it. And so I ended up leaving traditional music industry to build software tools for musicians yeah. and trying to solve some of the same problems that honestly that Podpage is trying to solve i mean Pod, there is a very direct link where i started Podpage because i saw podcasters doing the same thing that musicians did 10 years prior and it really <laughs> messed It you know ended up causing a lot of bad things and so but yeah with musicians so i ended up building a bunch of software for them
1: you worked at ca
0: i was yeah i was in their nashville office for a year and that taught me that i didn't want to be an agent <laughs> that it was fun it was interesting
1: it was I'm um, interesting when you ha- it's interesting when you have that perspective about like how you decide to represent someone because it could be musicians it could be podcasters it's just creators right and how you think about or what you look for in a creator that is, is are there certain traits for people i'm just curious because of your experience you know how, how you decide that what makes this person different from this person when maybe talent-wise they probably got the same chops but you know there's something about this other person that you're just like uh this is the person that i think is has more of a shot
0: (laughs) music is is weird because there's so many people involved in an artist's career and they all have very specific jobs In, in most cases traditional sense i think there's it's blended now but back when i was like it looking into the space, like a an eight. So we've all, a lot of people have seen Entourage and think of like a, an agent for an actor, sort of that agent is sort of the, the, their manager for the most part. And then they deal with every part of their career. They're getting them on, they're just doing everything. I think actors have musicians or managers too, but I, and I don't really get the distinction, but whatever. In the music world, a booking agent does one thing and that is book a band on a tour. That's it. There's nothing else they do and they take money for the ticket sales for that tour and so it's a very transactional thing it's actually the thing i didn't like about the job i was sort of mentored by one of the best people in the business and when i'd sit with him and watch him do his job it was like spreadsheets and it was like it was just like figuring out all right well how do i put john mayer on tour and also guster on tour and also and like it's just like shuffling things around and once they get to a certain level it's just like all right we're going to do another tour john mayer plays arenas all right we just got to it just there was no creativity in it, uh, and for me, like I, I'm a much more creative person, and so like it felt more like a program management than sing Now, in if you're managing the band, it's a totally different experience. You're you're part of every part of their, their lifestyle or life cycle and so like it kind of depends on what what your job is as to who you want to pick, because there there are bands that are great. They sell you know at least old school. They would sell lots of records, but they really weren't great live. Yeah, and so for those bands. They're a great band to sign to your label, but not a great band if you're a booking agent. Conversely, like Fish or Dave Matthews, sure, they've sold a lot of records, but it's meaningless compared to even back in the day where people bought records. Like yeah. touring was how they made money. So like being their, being their record label was like, oh, who cares? But being their booking agent was an amazing thing. So I think it just depended on what, you were, what role you were playing.
1: Any memorable stories from those days?
0: Yeah. I mean, they're all like, there's no like deep crazies. I mean, there's just, there were situations that were funny. I was, I did when we did the arena tour, I was tour managing for a guy named Matt Carney, who we signed to the label. Okay, And it was when he was opening, we'd put him on an opening tour with John Mayer, who was also sort of one of the OG people on our label. That's a big deal. And so that tour was, well, the lesson there is we signed John Mayer or they, this is before I worked for him, but they signed John Mayer to the label. As he got huge, his manager made a fortune. The label did not make, I mean, the label made money, but like dwarf comparison to the, what the label or the management was making. Yeah. With Matt Carney, we signed him as a label and management client. So like, we just learned lessons as time went on. But anyway, that was during the time where he was dating Jessica Simpson. And so there was just a bunch of like weird, you know, <laughs> the fact that she was on tour with us. It's just like all, the whole thing was a weird.
1: That's experience. hilarious. Yeah.
0: And, and then, you know, also conversely, one went in a sedan with a, someone we signed who was like a ex-con in jamaica rastafarian singer songwriter (laughs) whose music was good yeah and he had an interesting story but he was a little bit you know that we had some experiences where he just culturally different in situations we get into where i had to sort of explain to the people the club owners that oh this is just the culture that they're used to (laughs) it wasn't meant to be an aggressive statement or action you know just Yeah, yeah, yeah i would say that there was a bunch of weird weird that was a funny two weeks so anyway
1: no specifics, I'll get into specifics, but Any part of it you miss?
0: <sighs> no, actually not there's no part of being traditionally in the music industry I miss because I think it made me appreciate music a lot less. I would go to a concert and instead of just enjoying the concert, I would be listening to the mix, figuring out how they're, you know, how the band was even if it wasn't one of my bands, like, I was still like analyzing the show. I could not go and enjoy a show. It took me years to be able to just go and like be a fan again some people can do it i couldn't as soon as i was in that side i was like oh all right well this room isn't set up correctly or like oh this performance needs you know i need to remember <laughs> to tell them between these two songs to do x y or z like it just was it was it like i love music is one of the things i love the most and it turned it into work and i so i don't miss that at all i've been much happier since leaving the music industry
1: when i look at uh, the jobs you've you've had previously i, I notice that In addition to your passion for music, but there's also like an entrepreneurial aspect to what you're doing. And you were a founder of Artist Data. I think that's one of the databases I was pinging when I created my app because I was looking for sources because it was essentially the app was um, you could see their Instagram feed. You could see where they're touring. I think we used I think we might have used Artist Data for something like that. We We would pull in there. Their Twitter feed, so it was essentially one-stop shop. But again, it was just DJs, just electronic music DJs. And I think some of them were posting stuff on on Artist Data. So, like, how did the idea for that come about? And people have a lot of ideas, and they don't necessarily turn into like starting a company.
0: Yeah, that, that was like that was the transition from music to tech. I part of my job at this label management company was, you know, the the John Mayer tour is a good example. We would we would book Matt on a John Mayer tour. Awesome, really good news. This is back when MySpace existed, and so did like 50 MySpace copycats, and no one knew which was going to win or lose. And so I I spent a lot of time taking one set of data, which was like 20 tour dates, and putting them places. So I'd put them on all these social media channels. I'd put them on the website. I'd send them to the the team. I would put them into a tour book that we would use when we were actually out on the road. I would send it to the local newspapers. Like There's so many places. just like It would take days to get a new batch of tour dates and distribute them. And then if something changed, we had to go through and do update it. So, so much of my day was doing that. That's what artist data really was. It was a dashboard where you came in as an artist and you said, here's my tour. And then you clicked a button to print a tour book or, you know, you clicked a button to sync it to MySpace and Facebook and Twitter and all these other places. So, and aut- it would automatically get sent to, you know, if you're playing a show in San Francisco, it would automatically get sent to the Chronicle one week out or something. You know, it just like just did everything for you. And so, yeah. So that was... There's so many people I worked with, all of us were dealing with this data problem. It was sort of a no-brainer as a first project. So that's where that came from.
1: It, I mean, they, and it felt like it, it probably scratched an itch that the industry was craving at the time. And, and I imagine the reception was pretty strong.
0: It did well. You know, the thing that, the thing building this, again, this is pre-Spotify, pre, I mean, everything was different at that point. iTunes was starting to become a thing, but people were still buying records. Like, But back then you know, this is 2007, I think it really launched was, um, it definitely scratched an itch, but it also showed that. And I wrote a blog post when I finished my last music startup that said, never build a music startup, which I've been proven wrong a couple of times, but overall I still believe the, the premise, which was musicians, just don't have a lot of money because they're trying to get we were like we would play shows where the money from the show would go for for gas and pizza and we wouldn't leave with more money than we came in with we just <laughs> left with the opportunity to play for a new set of people right yeah, yeah. and so this is, you know and a lot of the long tail musicians are in that state and so they loved the tool it was very popular it was very hard to get anyone to pay for it and you know, that's okay for a while, but after a little bit, if you can't get anyone to pay for it, it's like, you're like, I'm like, well, I know you're special because you write music and we should give you everything for free, but like, I spend all day building this for you. Like, do I not deserve to also be able to eat? Right? It was this weird. And so, so then it's like, well, don't work with the small musicians, work with the big musicians. So I would go to the big musicians and they'd be like, well, you should pay me for me to use this because I'm going to make it popular. And so, I built a few music startups, and they all followed this trend of like, if the band doesn't succeed, they blame your tool as one of the reasons that they're not succeeding. If they do succeed, they give your tool no credit, and they ask for not not to pay for it as much or something like that. So I didn't find it was a particularly fulfilling industry to build for on the tech side, which is why I stopped in like 2011, I stopped building for the music industry. But but they loved the tools. Everyone loved it. It's just they weren't really willing to love it enough to like compensate the teams that were building them. So
1: i'm just smiling because like you could just replace musician with podcaster (laughs) and like it's interesting when like podcasters get started like there's so many tools to use and they all want them to be free because they're all just like musicians like bootstrapping it and just getting started and and it's literally like you know because i've developed uh, and worked with a couple of tools that support the podcasters and again if god forbid it's like five bucks a month they're just like ah no (laughs) it gets a little too much like can't afford that and then like if But I think for the people that are being serious and the musicians who are serious and like just like podcasters are being serious, I think they realize like, is this something that I need to invest in as, you know, like musicians, right? Like you have to like replace your guitar strings. You gotta buy like drumsticks. You gotta do the things, you know, photographers need to buy cameras every seven years. Like you have to do the things that enhance the creation of, of your trade. And, you know, I think podcasters are starting to learn that more and more as, as the industry matures.
0: I think the other thing is for when, and the lessons I learned with music is I was so focused on number of users. And so I gave away everything for free. And then later on said, okay, I'm going to start charging for this and this and this. Right. And that was, I did this twice and it, it didn't really work. I mean, it was, it, I converted people. It was such a small amount that it wasn't that interesting with Podpage. It has been from day one outside of like a small beta testing period i was like if you want a website you have to pay for it and if you can't pay for it or if it's not it's too expensive i totally get that there's a bunch of free tools and i can help you figure out which ones you should use but if you're going to use this one you have to pay for it that's just, and so it's and it's actually worked really well i mean there's a definitely i mean and of course we we're probably underpriced and we have a lot of coupons that we give people and we try to help here and there but like but there is this premise of like you know you you want to make money? Like the the, for the the product is so much better now because we did that and we couldn't keep investing. And so it's taken a different approach. Certainly, I wish we had a lot more podcasters paying for it. And there's a lot that are like, I don't, I can't afford it. And I totally get that. But I think we have starting out with being like, this is a premium tool. You will pay for it if you want it. It's sort of just, like, they get it. It's like, you can't buy a beer if you can't afford the beer. So it's not like they walk into a bar and they're like, I can't afford it. Can I just have the beer? Like, that's not <laughs> you know, it's so I think that was my mistake was like not setting it up at the beginning to be like, this is a mutual exchange. Like I will give you some yeah. really good software, but you have to sign up for a subscription. So,
1: so you, you started honing your entrepreneurial software chops. I don't, I don't know if, did you build your own stuff? Did you you know, just work with developers? Cause after that, you know, the company was acquired by Sonic bids and then you worked on one sheet for a while, but I'm, I'm curious about the, um, the idea for the the work you did at cluster labs which became launch kit and then the eventual acquisition by Google I'm interested to hear a little bit about that
0: yeah so artist data I hired an outsourced team of developers to help build it for a while I had a co-founder that we ended up parting ways after a couple of years but and he handled a lot of the the development but he just outsourced the team and so when he left I just worked directly with the outsource team and it was it was good, but I wasn't. I was somewhat technical, like I could kind of build websites, but I didn't really know much more than that. I remember being on the bus in Chicago reading like a, a book that big about CSS and trying to figure because I just needed the problem. It was really hard to work with these outsourced developers, yeah, because I wasn't great at defining exactly what we needed. So anyway, after Artist Data sold it to Sonic Bids, helped them get that integrated, left Sonic Bids. I just was learning to code really, and I launched OneSheet as a experiment that was it sort of. And again this is where you'll start hearing this again in the pod in the pod page story is like myspace had basically fallen and everyone had given all this money to like build their friend graph on myspace and it just disappeared and i would be speaking at these music conferences and the drum that we would beat most of the people who were on these panels was like Direct connection with your listeners. Direct connection with your listeners. Do not go through platforms as your only way of reaching them. Direct connection. Okay, what's the best way to do a direct connection? Email us. Well, how do I collect an email? list? put it on your website. How do I build a website? And so I ended up building one sheet, which was a turnkey website builder for musicians. Not nearly as in-depth as PodPage, but kind of the same thing. Like, we'll make it easy for you to launch a website. It's powered by Twitter and all your other feeds. Yeah. Set it and forget it. Takes you two minutes to set up, all that stuff. And so... Yeah. So it was really more of an experiment and I didn't intend it to be another startup. I don't think I would have chosen to do another music startup, but it, like, because I learned a lot in that community, I launched like four projects and that was the one that took off. So I did that for a year, sold that to BuzzZook, uh, Banzoogle, which was a more sophisticated website builder for bands. And then started like, I wanted the mobile was big at the time. It was getting bigger. I teamed up with a friend to build a mobile app called Cluster, which actually still exists, sort of a private photo sharing app. And that was about exploring like the, the mobile space as we built out this consumer app, we found that there was a lot of issues with building apps. Like it was still a very new space and there's tons of like stuff that was hard to do. So while we were building our apps, we were building tools to make building our apps easier those tools ended up being more popular than the apps. And so that's launch kit. So we, we, the apps can kind of continued, but launch kit was a developer toolkit. And so we built that for a year or so. And that's what Google saw and was like, we want this to be part of Google. And so we in 2016 sold that to Google and spent three years there, and then Cluster sort of was given to a friend, and again it still exists, has a huge amount of users at this point. It's kind of fun, but it, from a venture capital, it was we raised venture capital for a Cluster and like okay. for a photo app, raising venture capital, you have to sell for a billion dollars for that to be a success, right? It has to be big. Cluster is and never will be that big, and so it sort of didn't make sense as a venture company, but as an independent company, the person who runs it now does really well with. Because they still, still have tons of users using it. So it, everything kind of worked out.
1: Was it like a, uh, what's the pre-Instagram photo site? Um, Flickr? Flickr, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it like Flickr?
0: So, no, if you've ever used, I don't know, if you have an iPhone, it's called iCloud Photo Sharing, where you can set up an album and invite friends to it, and you all can see the same album and put photos in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Google Photos has a shared, it was that. Okay. It's just, it was that before any of the other ones existed. Apple didn't do it, Google didn't, no one did it, it but it was... You got back from a vacation with a bunch of friends, you uploaded your photos, you invited your friends, everyone came in, built a shared album, or you had a kid and you didn't want to put like a thousand photos of your kid on Facebook, but your mom wanted to see a thousand photos. Like it was a private space to share photos. Still is. People used to do it for all kinds of stuff. School teachers would use it to like take pictures of the kids during the day and share it back with parents. And so, yeah, ended up being, uh, yeah. it's a really cool app, but just all the platforms built it in. I still think it's better than what Apple and Google have done, but it's hard to compete with, you know, the app already being on your phone, so.
1: Yeah, 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 we've used, my family has used uh, the Google Photos occasionally for like sharing albums, so I definitely can see the value in a tool like that. What was it, what was life like at uh, Google? Oh,
0: it was great. Google's like, I don't know, I can't imagine a better work environment. I mean, you get to, they give you tons of flexibility and tons of sort of autonomy as a person. So like that you're trusted, you're, there's no like punch, you're not punching in, you're not and punching out, you're put on project teams, and the team is for the most part autonomous. And there's fairly, you know, goals are set at the org level, and then trickle down through the different product areas. So I would say like, it was a wonderful, I I never, I always felt very supported. And uh, I always felt very supported. And I thought it was a cool company to work for the, it's just a little, it's hard, it was harder to get stuff done. So bigger companies move slower and someone who likes to committee right yeah as someone who likes to build products very quickly and iterate and like kind of let the users define what the thing we should build is it was harder to do that when when you know everything took two quarters and so it was it was an awesome company to work for and they it is like obviously i mean they just announced earnings yesterday and i mean it's just like a money printer they've solved such a core problem yeah. they do it so well <laughs> Yeah. It's it was awesome to be a part of that, but as someone who loves to like build little things and launch them very quickly and see what people do with them, it just it was a bad fit for me. So, I spent 3 years there, but I was ready to get back to building stuff when I left.
1: Yeah, a little stint I'm curious about the the impetus for Frontline Foods, where that came from.
0: That was, you know, COVID hit, everyone was trying to figure out how to help. Yeah. Some friends came up with a concept where you know, they would sponsor meals for nurses and doctors, and so, and they would buy it from restaurant because all the restaurants had to close down. So the the concept was, you know, buy catering from a restaurant and deliver it to a hospital. That was it. Okay. And so, and then obviously, you know, you can only do that as an individual a couple times. And so then it was okay. Well, actually, organizing that process was what. Was the valuable part, and so and there, this started cropping up all over the country, and so basically we just merged it all, and it was a it was a nationwide volunteer effort. I don't even think it was ever established as a company that we. It's been so long I forget all the numbers, but I helped sort of take the San Francisco version, build some software around it to be able to manage out a, a nationwide rollout, and so we I think we raised like ten million dollars from people, and I don't know how many meals we delivered, but wow. in that first like six months of COVID, it was a very it was a very cool thing to be a part of. It wasn't a full-time thing. It was just, I was helping. It, no, it wasn't full-time for anyone. We all, it was like 600 volunteers, all sort of organized in different cities around the country, delivering different hospitals, working with different restaurants, trying to like keep the restaurants in business, keep, you know, the hospitals hospitals fed you know the nurses fed you know they could go down to the cafeteria but it, it felt a little bit better after everything they were doing for us for like a really nice meal to be delivered from a restaurant as opposed to eating hospital food that's awesome very cool so yeah it was uh it was a really fulfilling project to be on
1: just if anyone's paying attention that's already three exits i think <laughs> so well yeah.
0: the frontline foods wasn't an exit i mean yeah technically frontline foods was no a-
1: i mean th- i'm just a, before then yeah yeah, yeah, no, I was just curious. I mean, it's, it seems like you really like there's no shortage of ideas like that you have of like, you know, products, Where there's products where there's companies where there's services. I feel like that's it's in your DNA of like ways to to make the world a better place. And without getting into this, too much specifics, because we haven't even uh, gotten into the, the pod page story. But talk a little bit about um, the work you did at Elevate and Comstock.
0: So Elevate was so when I left Google, I wanted to build a bunch of stuff. So some of that stuff, if you're looking at like LinkedIn, I basically, the year after Google, I spent, I started, you know, it was basically, I have a small team that I work with, but it was mostly driven by me. And I did two things. I helped coach and consult startups, which was like working with CEOs to figure out their product process and that kind of stuff. Now, I think that was what Elevate was. And then I did a product studio where that's what PodPage came out of. And that was like, I I was like, in 12 months, I want to build 12 totally different products. And so... And I want them intentionally to be small. I just come out of Google where everything took forever. I was like, I want these things to take weeks, days or weeks to build, not months. I want them, they don't need to be solving giant problems in the world. They just need to be solving a very specific, clear problem. And so I launched, I think it was like 12, I forget how many, but you know, all of them failed except PodPage. Most of them didn't even have a shot to succeed. Cause some of them I was like, this doesn't even need to exist. I just want to build it, right? I just gave myself like the total flexibility to just have fun building again, get that muscle back. And you know, and then I also helped other startups as just a fun way of networking, getting back in the startup world. So that's what Elevate was.
1: So Podpage came out of there.
0: Podpage came out of the product studio
1: yeah. Interesting. And
0: at the end of the year, Podpage at the beginning was a cool little product that didn't that was doing well, but it wasn't at all like something we could live off of. You know, it was just like a and I don't think it's a company that should, you know, be venture capital backed, because I don't think it's a big enough thing. And so and I don't want to have to make it a big thing just because we raise money. So at the end of the year, we were like, all right, well, I can either scale up consulting, I can build some more stuff. And at one of the companies that I'd started helping was Common Stock, which is sort of a social fintech company. And the CEO and I had been meeting. And the biggest problem he had was that like I could help with helping him organize the product stuff, but he had no one to actually execute it. And so I joined them for a year last January to run product, I hired a product team. We got the process in place just kind of got the machine running a little bit better. And so I did that for 2021. And then by the end of the year and Podpage literally that the whole year was just kind of just growing, you know, the product was, I kind of finished the product the year before I finished the core of it. And I had a small team that was adding some features and doing customer support, but for the most part, like it just kind of like grew. And by the end of the year, it had grown enough to be able to be like something that was a, uh, something that we could like actually live off of and focus on a little bit more. And so stepped away from common stock at the beginning of this year.
1: So what's been the most interesting thing for you, given all that experience and like all this, all these years you have of building these products, product market fit, learning, you know, working on something that's supporting like a, a creator economy. How much of that has been helpful for you as you've like made your way into the, the world of podcasting and the, there's no one type of podcaster as you've probably already know there's like the solo person there's there's the networks there's the people with the really big shows and I'm just curious with your lens like what you've seen in the community if anything that's been surprising for you as you start to build up the product and then the feature set.
0: Yeah there's this very consistent between whether it's musicians app developers or podcasters which are three groups that I built software for. They all have very one very specific thing in common which is they are creating something for, and putting something into the world that they created. Yeah. And the most important thing for them to do is create something is to like have as much time as possible to make that thing they're creating really awesome. And there's a lot of crap that they have to do in the meantime, sort of like, you know, if you want to start a business, you have to do your taxes, but like you didn't start the web design business to be able to become a master in taxes. And so you need to spend as much time as possible designing websites, not doing taxes right so like with musicians this is kind of the it's like you're spending all your time managing data across all these places like just use this tool and then get back to writing songs musicians should write songs and be great performers that's what they should do depending on what their focus is app developers you should be making valuable apps and adding features you shouldn't be having to figure out how to track your reviews and some of the other crap that you used to have to do with podcasters it's the same thing like the only thing that you should do is in my opinion create great content figure out how to create great content everything else will follow. And for some people that might be like writing really interesting stories and doing podcasts around stories or for others, it's just booking guests and studying the guests before they come on, like whatever it is, like all that matters is the thing you put out is interesting because if you do that, then more people will find it. More people will listen to it and share it and your, your business will grow. It doesn't matter if your website is like pixel perfect or like, you know, the top logo flashes a bunch or whatever, right? Like it just, it doesn't matter. What matters is when you put something out there it's good. And then also that someone can find it. And so that's kind of like when working with all these creators, getting them to refocus on the thing that matters and not get distracted by all the crap that does not has been Mm -hmm. the theme that I've seen over and over again. And it's very overwhelming. I mean, this is why like, I'm kind of a little unorthodox when it comes to podcasting, because I feel like the thing I dislike the most about the podcasting world is this focus on like, amazing audio experiences and great equipment. I see so many podcasters like, I want to start a podcast. What should I do first? And the advice is like, spend a thousand dollars on a microphone and soundproof your closet. And like, and so I feel like it, it's it's that like, and so they do all that and then they get to the, like, okay, I'm ready to record. And it's like, well, what do you, who do you, you know, what do you want to record? Like, oh, I do not have time to think about that, but I have this amazing microphone. And I feel like, <laughs> personally, I I've, I've found, I've been seeing more and more great content on Twitter and Clubhouse because it's like, no one gives a shit. What, that it sounds like, you know, everyone knows people are on AirPods. No one cares like if there's a bunch of ums because it's just a conversation, but sometimes you get really special content that way. There's a lot of crap, but there's also a lot of crap in podcasting. So I think that getting people to focus on that like core, what's special about your podcast? My wife and I were talking about this last night because she's considering playing in the podcast space and starting something. And I think she has a really unique perspective because of her job and because of life and all, and she started going down the road of like, well, what about you know, how do we do editing and advertising? And I was like, don't worry about any of that stuff. Like just, how are we, are we do we have, are we going to have the right equipment? And I was like, she wants to do it with a friend. I was like, why don't you guys just get on the phone once a week for eight weeks and have a conversation and see if you think it's interesting, right? Like just get started. Don't worry about any of the other stuff and see all that matters is that like yeah. the content is interesting. Anyway, so that's been a theme. And so when you look at stuff that I've built, I've built things that I'm trying to remove work that they would have to do elsewhere. And so, and if you can remove work and also make it, more likely that they are discovered it's sort of like a bonus. And that's kind of what PodPage. it was seeing. Like I had friends that I either I heard two stories from podcasters. I have a website, it's on WordPress. It's a huge pain in the ass to manage. It breaks all the time because plugins get updated. I don't even know where I'm supposed to host it. Like it's just huge. How do I even do it? I don't know code. How do I hire a developer? There was that side of things. Or I don't have a website because I just don't want to deal with it. It's too hard. I don't like. It's fine. I'll just people can find me on Apple. That's what I heard. So I was like, okay. Well, I very strongly don't believe that you should only be found on the players. I think you need a direct connection with your listeners constantly. Yeah. And I think that there are platforms for web development that are more complicated than most podcasters need. And so that's kind of where PodPage came from.
1: How do you think about like the roadmap? Do you feel like the features have been at the point where? You know, it's the core of what it is and it's now just tweaking or is there more functionality that you think is possible?
0: Yeah, I think it's kind of gone in phases. So at the beginning, I feel like phase one was like add a ton of features. And that was 2021, 2020, or sorry, 2020, 2021 was a little bit of refinement, but really not a huge amount of development, a couple core features. And then 2022 is going to be a lot about the biggest issue with PodPage that I've been very clear on from the beginning is it's amazing if you have like, if you don't care about super customization, which most people shouldn't care about because it really doesn't matter. If you want a page that stays up to date automatically, imports all your stuff from Apple, import I mean, just imports all your reviews from Apple, like it just does everything for you. It's great. If you want it to be like the most unique page in the world and you want to put like change the pixel in the top right of the screen to be something else, like it's not really great. Squarespace is better. WordPress is better. I would like to get Podpage moving closer to those platforms this year. So, a little bit more customization. I think that's like the biggest missing piece is that it's pretty customizable. But, you know, I think most people's biggest gripes with it is like, oh, I wanted to do this thing and I, I couldn't. It wasn't like you don't have the features. It's just like, I can't customize this awesome website with all the features I want. I can't customize as much. So, that's going to be like the biggest sort of improvement this year.
1: So. And what about support? Like, how you think about the needs for bigger like networks that have multiple shows
0: so we have a network product and so you can create a website and you can attach as many shows as you want to it. each of the shows have a sub page on your your website kind of like what you would imagine like if you go to cbs.com and you wanted to like learn about one of cbs's shows like you're not going to get bounced over to like sure lost.com you're going to go cbs.com slash lost it's the same structure yeah yeah so that exists you know it's got we've got you know a few dozen it's not a huge need Because again, most networks with tons of shows fall into that we want it to be really special and unique. You know, we want to have our own WordPress page that's super customizable. And so, but I, I think some of the stuff this year will make our network pages like pretty special, but so totally have that. We have multi podcast accounts for consultants and coaches that have lots of clients. Okay. And so what a lot of times will happen is a consultant or coach will set up like 15 websites for their clients, give us what we charge for the websites charge their clients a lot more for website management. And we're fine with that, you know? And so we, that's, so I would say like, we have individual podcast accounts, multiple podcast accounts, and then network accounts. Those are the sort of the three use cases for us.
1: Is the coaching option almost like a white label?
0: It's not a white label in the sense that like, they can't tell their client to log in and got it to PodPage, but, and see like podcast junkie or something as the logo of like, this is the platform. So they just do the, the the podcast coach just takes care of the management of the website. It's, usually, don't the podcaster does never see it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The irony is like the coach doesn't really need to do anything because the website stays up to date without them having <laughs> to do anything. So,
1: yeah. Do you think about SEO? Because I know, like, uh, obviously, one of the things we talk about when we produce shows for clients is just like, hey, be conscious not only of the name of the show, but obviously, like each episode. I think all the best practices that people would hear in the past about a blog post being super SEO friendly keywords and all that sort of stuff. I know that, you know, to what extent you think about that as you allow people to you're pulling in the feed. So actually they have to make sure whatever they load into the host is what you're pulling in. But I'm, I'm curious what, if anything, you know, PodPage can do to help support that.
0: Yeah. So was, I think it was like the first weekend. I can't remember if I wrote this blog post before or after launching PodPage, but it's there's, I have a blog post called SEO for podcasters and yes. it goes through, for a website how to structure the code in the best possible way for google to find it and there's all these little things you have to do there's some obvious stuff like if you ever write, if you're you know if you have an episode about beekeeping make sure the word beekeeping is all over the you know in the show notes and the title and all that stuff. but like you know for example we make every episode link a pretty link so the the actual url is you know yourpodcast.com slash beekeeping as opposed to yourpodcast.com slash 645 because it's episode 645 or whatever all the meta tags are super well optimized for for what we're given what Google wants okay structurally the page has the right elements like it's got the hierarchy that Google looks for it has a it's called a schema but it's got the, a schema that they look for that helps them like index you know so we're telling them this is a page about a podcast this is a page about a podcast episode the author of this podcast episode is it? all that stuff is just out of the box automatic so it's not that hard to do yeah. but it is you know we do take care of that so the podcaster doesn't really need to do anything you can go in as a podcaster and tweak your keywords or tweak your title if you want to which is totally fine but and we have a tool within PodPage where we say here's the state of your seo and usually and all it does is make recommendations and to be honest it's not very sophisticated because it's not that hard right you have a podcast called beekeeping today and your website is brendan's bees or something right it's like Or actually, if your website's like, you know, I'll I'll be super dated, geocities.com slash bees, (laughs) Google's not going to see that and be like, that's the right website, right? But if your website, so we always tell people like adding a custom domain is actually one of the best things you can do because Google then says, all right, there's this beekeeping today show, here it is on Apple, here it is on Spotify, here it is on Podpage, you know, like if it's podpage.com slash beekeeping, here it is on Podchaser. Well, we know Apple's a good site, so we'll put that at the top. But like, if you're just not, a, if you're just like a page on someone else's site, it's, it's hard for Google to know which is the best. Yeah. You put your own domain name and it's the same name and you put it in your podcast feed. So all of your feeds. So that means Google podcast is pointing to your website. Everyone's pointing to your website. It's weird with podcasting because you can change your link and suddenly you get backlinks all across the internet because everyone else who's sucking in this feed will backlink. Interesting. So we usually tell people if you just buy a domain and make it your, make it your website and your feed. You, I mean, it depends, right? If you have a super popular, if your keywords are popular words like true crime, if you called your podcast the True Crime <laughs> Podcast. It's gonna be tough,
1: yeah, yeah. but it,
0: in a lot of cases, like you can get into the number one to number five spot on Google in like a matter of weeks, having with a brand new website just because once you change it in your feed, everyone's pointing to that website, and so Google immediately knows. Well, this is the canonical place to go to learn about this podcast. So, so we have a page within pod page that kind of explains that and checks their feed and says, oh, in your feed, you actually don't have your website. You should replace the link and all that stuff. So try to help a little bit.
1: It's all the things that like, to your point, as you mentioned earlier, like folks got into podcasting, like they weren't thinking about this stuff and they don't come from the background of like SEO expertise, website expertise, (laughs) social media expertise. And it's like as a podcaster, you have to sort of like either figure out how to like get help with that or learn it. Like when I started my show, like I had to edit the audio, I had to write the show notes. I had to create the website, I had to get all the socials, I had to promote, I had to create graphics. And it's like, I think what you've done with Podpage is like really, really helped the community in take the things off the plate that that's not their genius. And like, you probably don't need to be experts in or worry about and just let, you know, obviously with your experience now, and, and understanding what makes sense. And and I think the fact that you're incorporating, you, there is some social sharing options. I think you're building, building as well to the site.
0: Yeah. I mean, some of the podcast hosts do this too, but, yeah. but yeah, you can set up, you know, when a new episode is published and we import it to your website, it automatically shares on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn, or a new review is pulled in from Podchaser or Apple. We can automatically share that again, you know, just things that you don't have to remember to have to do, right. It just automatically goes out. So.
1: Are you pulling in the the new? I know Spotify just to add reviews as well.
0: I don't think Spotify. You know, okay, the Spotify is going through a moment right now where people are pissed about Joe Rogan and people are quitting Spotify. I, I've honestly been too busy to track the whole thing. and I don't. I have no. I have no opinion. Spotify is a walled garden. It is like they are actively trying. In my opinion, they are the only player in the entire podcasting space that is trying to break what's special about podcasts, which is podcasts are this open format and rss feed is an open thing anyone can access it spotify is actively trying to get you to not allow other people to listen unless you listen on spotify in that case I, I totally understand it from a business model perspective it sucks but i get why like you know whoever you know i used to love Dak shepherd i get why he's willing to trade basically you know anyone being able to listen to it for a ton of money right good for him yeah but i haven't listened to his podcast since it went on spotify because i just don't listen to podcasts on spotify it's just not part of my routine and so so i don't imagine that spotify is going to be particularly open and friendly about letting their reviews out of spotify right like i think spotify is worse than apple at this point as far as a walled garden yeah so i don't know but if, if there's a, if there's ever a way for me to easily get them out like apple makes it very easy for you to to see the reviews if spotify does that, absolutely would, would bring it in but yeah. i'm not expecting that from everything they've done I think a huge customer support headache right now is people who are so confused. Cause they're like, I set up on anchor, but you're not importing my stuff, but it's showing up on Spotify. And it's like, well, that's probably because the default setting or one of the main, you know, they're trying to get you to not let, allow anyone else to have this content. So
1: people yeah. sign up for Spotify. They're like, not submitting the RSS feeds to Apple anymore.
0: Yeah. So it's like, you know, at this point I used to say Anchor's great. Cause it's free. Go use, I, yeah. please don't pay for things you don't need to. And now I'm just like, stay away from anything that Spotify related. If you want, openness because they're going to consistently be moving in the direction of trying to get you to not allow other people i get it it's a business but
1: have you been uh, following with the folks at the podcasting podcastindex.org, adam curry and, and folks are doing with that
0: yeah and it's been on my list of yeah. i've been meaning to support all their new podcasting 2.0 meta tags and stuff i think it's it's all good i mean i think having a groundswell of support for keeping things open is a good idea
1: yeah the other thing that's interesting in this maybe something that um, to consider is just obviously they're supporting this whole ecosystem of like th- what they call in value for value. So and there's a whole slew of podcast apps that, and, and I've tested a couple out fountains, a really good one, but just essentially setting up a wallet and then getting like your satoshis, which is like your Bitcoin micro payments. And it's been fun. Cause I, I sent them a note. I sent them like a 3000 satoshis which is like i don't know a dollar (laughs) some little amount but the beauty of it is i could write in there and i'm like hey adam and dave really support what you guys are doing podcasting 2.0 and then like you know they read it out and they read like hey harry thirty three thousand satoshis and they read my note out and it's like it creates this like loop of like oh like the show I like just shouted me out and just like, and I was able to contribute to them like outside of a PayPal, like no middleman. And just, it's been fascinating to see how that's building up a, a groundswell of enthusiasm. There's like, you know, telegram channels where people can, can set up that pretty easily. So I'm wondering if, you know, because you're creating these websites for folks, if there was an ability to like incorporate that model in there, so you could literally say, Oh, click this button, like do the, instead of like doing it through the app, but just on the site because it's pod page supports it. Now I could be like, Oh, I just want to send a boostergram to like Brendan and so be like, Hey, thanks for everything you do. And now it's, you know, obviously there's intricacies with setting up the wallet, but I'm wondering if at some point you might try to look into that as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you, after this, if you could send me a couple, and you probably show them in the show notes too, like examples of how they're doing it. They're like, cause I love to take a look. So the way that, the way that we typically work is, try as hard as possible to, to use third party ser- tools that are solving a problem really well right because i i really want to focus on just building the best website that's it yeah yeah and so but so like you can easily just by like putting in your buy me a coffee username or your it's called ko-fi or i don't know if you're supposed to say coffee, coffee. yeah coffee. there's like the, the, <laughs> yeah. yeah there's like patreon patreon you can, yeah. PayPal. you can basically add your little id and it just inserts it on your website so there's a lot of Podpage where in the bottom left there's a little coffee symbol. You tap that, it opens up, you can say I want to send this person five bucks. So I'd be more than open to doing it for any platform. Very cool. Building our own payment. The Bitcoin one is easier because you're using the blockchain, but you know, a lot of people have asked us, like, can you basically build Patreon into Podpage where I can t- accept payment? And I'm like, I don't really want to be at this point, even though it's probably the biggest monetary opportunity that we could do would be to help facilitate fan payments to shows. Yeah, I think it'd be way more lucrative than charging podcasters. I don't really want to get in the middle of that transaction right now. For me, it's it's always been easier to be like, what we do is we build great websites and we integrate things into it, as opposed to being like, all right, well, now we need to make sure that, oh, you, you collected 200 bucks, you know, the processing fee, I just, it seems like a huge headache and it seems like it'd be a big distraction.
1: Yeah. And then I can send you stuff that they have. There's like a, it gets very technical there's a whole github and i like i start to venture down that path and i'm just nope i'll stick with my basic css and html jobs and yeah exactly. <laughs> that's about as much but i love it and i want to support them so i'll mention it to dave jones because i think he's going to come on on a future show to talk about that stuff cool so that that's going to be helpful what else has, has got i noticed you guys have stepped up your marketing efforts because naturally i hear you now on uh, pod news <laughs> as well so w- what's been the results from from that
0: yeah you know podcasting you know, this is a cry for help for anyone who's listening to this is like, how do I reach more people? Because, you know, that's the cool thing about pod pages. Generally when someone finds it, who has this problem, they go crazy. They're so happy. And they're like, ah. I always hear, like, yeah, I hear a lot. Like I wish I would have found out of this last week before I paid this developer to, you know, design me a WordPress page or something. And so I think by far my biggest challenge has not been like build a great product that people want. It's get it, get awareness in the podcasting community in music Building music tech products, there was basically two blogs, Hypebot and Digital Music News, which were great. Hypebot, wow. and if you released <laughs> yeah, if you released on either of those, the community found out about what you did. Yeah. And so, you know, every quarter we'd release a bunch of features, we put it on there, people heard about it, it was great. Podcasting, I think Pod News is the best source for information. And yeah. I love what James has always been doing with it, so we support them and it's always fun to like, you know, be a sponsor for different things. But that's it. I feel like that audience. I mean, we've been working with him for a year on and off. So it's I don't know if it's, we're getting anyone new. It's always been great. I'm constantly, you know, approached by podcasters that say, "Let me sponsor my show." A lot of podcasters listen to me. Ninety nine percent of the time, there's literally just no like return on investment for those. I want to like I used to actually when we launched Podpage, when you signed up, you got an email from me saying, "If you have a podcast, I'd be happy to sponsor it." blanket statement. Like, if you have, you know, like, let me know if you do sponsorships, if you think this would work, we do like, we'll do one or two shows. If there's a response, I'll keep doing it. Like it, to me, it was like, I'll totally support you if you're supporting us. Yeah. We kind of had to stop that because it literally never worked. (laughs) And so the ones that have worked really well, school of podcasting is a great resource. People love what Dave Jackson's doing. Awesome. So we've done some, done some great work with him. Podcast host has a really great resource and site. So they recommend us as a non WordPress site which has been or non-wordpress if, if you don't want to use wordpress use pod page and that's been good you know we've been at podcast movement had a booth there okay i'm speaking there in the la one in uh oh i'll be a few there weeks, or a few months. yeah
1: let's, let's have a chat when i'm planning to be there as well
0: totally we've done tons of like work with like grow your show grow the show like all you know we've tried to but i haven't found a scalable way to really get the word out so you know if there's anyone in the podcasting world that's like yeah, i know how to reach 100,000 podcasters, I'm um, all years because at this point- Well,
1: we're building, it's super early days, but there's a site I'm building called The Podosphere, so thepodosphere.com. And I sim- just kind of tracking what James is doing, I was like, oh, there's a lot of companies coming to space. So I just started building an Airtable. I was like, oh, 200, 300, 400, now it's like 600 companies. And so I was in the OnDeck's no-code cohorts. So I built it with no-code tools, like Webflow, Airtable. So I got the MVP up. Another company I was advising folded, but that Guy came over and he's my technical co-founder now. This guy named Brad Nolan. So that's in super. It sites up, but it's a little rough. But it's essentially almost like I want it to be like a Yelp for podcast resources, and we're gonna have like sponsorship spots at the top. So as the, as we build that out, that that the idea is to get traffic to that as well for anything anyone wants to do, any company in the podcasting space. <laughs> like that's gonna be the the place for that. So I'll I'll keep you updated on that.
0: Yeah, please do. Yeah, I mean I'm always. People reach out all the time saying, let's partner, let's do, you know, would you sponsor X, Y, or Z? And my response is always the same. It's like, as long as we make more than the sponsorship costs, yes. and I don't expect to make it on day one, but like, if we do like a three month thing by the end of three months or by the end of a month, we should be seeing more revenue coming in that is going to sponsor this, then I will sponsor you for the rest of time. It's just (laughs) a very clear thing.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's
0: like, if you can consistently return more than i'm investing you can charge me whatever you want as long as it's less than what you're making me and 90 percent of the time it just doesn't work right and so you know organic growth and just podcasters selling podcasters is by far our best source of new customers or like organic sources like we're very you know if you ask in the buzzsprout group as an example if you ask in their facebook group like want a website what should i use i haven't actually been in that group for a bit but like it used to be like someone would ask it'd be like 25 people would say pod page. Yeah. That's how we get customers. It's customers referring us. If I could find a way to like expose this to more, I would do that in a heartbeat. So.
1: Well, let's talk. Cause this is a podcast where I speak to podcasters about podcasting. So. Yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, We have an awesome affiliate program that gives like, I forget the I, I should know the terms. I think it's like 20% of the revenue for the two years after they're referred in. Nice, And so it's like, you know, and so a ton of people sign up. That's done really well for us, but that's just sort of that paid. That's usually what I tell people when they say we sponsor the show. I'm like, just tell your audience that I'm sponsoring it. Give your referral code. Yeah, yeah, of course. And and if it if people are signing up and it's working, then I'm happy to officially sponsor it. But like, let's try it. Start there because it's you know it's actually a pretty large amount of.
1: That's where podcasters sort of like uh get a. <laughs> You have know, to put your money where your mouth is. Like, oh, the show is popular. You think you can do well? Yeah, I'll just well, just save that affiliate code and let's see what happens. And then like crickets and just like, oh, okay. You know, that's when you really understand the, the reach of your audience.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because especially smaller ones, you know, it's like how much is it going to... Someone sent me their rates the other day and it was like, I think it was to sponsor five shows. It was a hundred bucks, something like that. Yeah. Fairly new show, but whatever. And five shows, hundred bucks. Now, if you're a podcast or pod page affiliate for every show you refer, if they, especially if they sign up for like a year plan, you just get 40 bucks. I think that's what it is. I can't remember. You get 3750 maybe, but like you get 40 bucks. So if you like, if you can get that's 40 bucks customer. So if you're going to charge me for five shows, a hundred bucks, well, if you could just get one person for each of those five shows to convert, <laughs> yeah. then you're gonna make 200 bucks, so what, like, just do that. Yeah. And most of them, like, yeah, they're just like, well, I'd rather you just you know, pay me. I'm like, well, that, me- <laughs> that kind of tells me everything I need to know about how confident you are for people to be signing up. So yeah. anyway, but you know, it's like, this one of those things. It's, to me, it's a very clear and easy business decision. Working with people who can drive traffic is, it's like everyone wins, so why wouldn't I do that?
1: Just a couple of quick, quick questions as you wrap up. What's uh, something you've changed your mind about recently?
0: So I became a parent father for the first time Congrats. about eight, nine months ago. So I would say the list of things that I've changed my mind about is probably too long. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I've, I've gone through this massive between COVID, changing jobs a few times, becoming a parent perspective, my perspective is just very, very different than it was a few years ago. And it's been, uh, you know, it's been, I, I you know, I, I can't actually think of, like a specific like huge example but i would say just there's a lot of little things that
1: yeah that would be a life-changing moment that would reposition like what you thought was important
0: <laughs> yeah and it's everything from like personal stuff to like my wife is a nurse she was a nurse prior to covid wow. that, and she's taking some time off for our daughter but just like the, being a nurse the perspective of other people on nurses the the nursing field medical everything is just so there's a lot of things that have been changed over the last couple of years so
1: that makes sense what's the most misunderstood thing about you
0: i think i have no idea i don't have a good answer for that i mean i don't really know what people you know my persona is pretty straightforward externally which is i build a lot of stuff and try to solve a bunch of problems and and i am not someone who gets like weird negative feedback from the community of like you know so i think that um probably that the assumption that i kind of know what i'm doing and I'm not continually learning every day, you know, it's everyone's like, Oh my God, you're so good at building products and releasing <laughs> stuff. And it's like, no, I'm not. I just do it fast enough in small enough spurts where I'm learning very quickly and adjusting. And after a couple of months, it looks like I'm a genius. But like the first thing I launched a couple of months ago, it was a horrible project. And so
1: lots, lots of shots at goal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Brendan, I'm glad uh, I reached out. I'm glad we got to connect. I've been following like the journey and, uh, just to, and then just to see your own entrepreneurial and business journey has been like amazing and it's incredibly inspiring as a fellow entrepreneur, like, you know, kudos to all the work you've done and then incredible resource you've built for the podcasting community. I mean, to what we've talked about here, it's something that podcasters struggle with visibility, you know, awareness of their show. And so your ability to take all these, a lot of these things off the podcasters plate and let them just focus on creating compelling content, like create a show that people are going to be wanting to come listen to week in and week out. And then trusting that, you know, a a partner like Podpage can help you with all like the visibility and marketing resources. So it's, it's an incredible resource and I'm happy to to spread the word far and wide about what you guys are doing.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. We'll make sure we get a link up there so folks can sign up and we'll put that in the show notes anywhere else. People want to follow your journey or podpage.com?
0: You know, I think that if you go to podpage there's a little button in the bottom right that pops up a window and you can chat with support. And I do a lot of the support. If you just tag me in that, you'll you'll get to me. Uh, the only other place I'm fairly active is Twitter, where I'm just okay. at Mulligan on Twitter. But um, either one of those places. And if you want to shoot me an email, it's just brendan at podpage.com.
1: Or uh, Evolution's podcast movement in March. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks again for it. Your...
0: I think I'm speaking, I think I just got, I'm speaking on Saturday. Oh, cool. I think it's the last day, but so I'll be there for a couple days.
1: Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thanks again to Brendan for coming on the show. Always appreciated. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 291. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Don't forget to check out our sponsor Focusrite and their awesome line of gear, specifically the Scarlet 2i2 Pro. Check out the full lineup at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Tune in next week for my conversation with Matthew Passy, friend of the show. Looking forward to catching up with him. And if you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for the retention hashtag. Let's go with hashtag PodPage and tag Brendan at podpagehq and me at podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.